Uh, Raj Gandhi is a professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School and the Mass General. He is a superb clinician educator, but also a researcher who works a lot with the ACTG and has been on the forefront of a lot of the new therapies and what's emerging. So I can't think of anybody really better to present to us today on the emerging drugs and some of the excitement, but also a few of the conundrums that we're going to be encountering. So Raj, welcome. Thank you, Mike. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, as Mike said, we're going to go from the here and now, as Dr. Cheever showed us, to a little bit more into the future. So my job is to try to make this real and to give you some um, idea of what's coming down the pike, but also some practical ideas about how you might um, be taking some of these new drugs into your clinic. So here are my um, uh, disclosures. And our goals are to describe investigational approaches for treating people with HIV and discuss the pipeline for novel uh, ARVs. Okay, so what I'd like to do is I'd like to frame this talk in the context of four different questions and, and really explore them in some depth um, to try to make this um, practical. So have we moved into the era of two-drug therapy? I'm going to talk about a new option, but also emerging and investigational two-drug options. What are the ART options in someone who has difficulty taking daily drugs? There's a lot of excitement around long-acting ART. We'll talk about some of the conundrums as, as we just heard. What about new drugs for treating someone with multi-drug resistant HIV? This was your uh, pre-activity question. And there's a new update from this morning from about an hour ago, so I'll, I'll, I'll bring that up. And then we'll talk about what's on the horizon. OK, so these are the DHHS and IAS USA guidelines for initial therapy of uh, HIV-infected individuals. Um, as you know, that's basically an integrase inhibitor plus two nucleoside RT inhibitors, so basically three drug therapy. Um, so what I want to talk about briefly is um, um, uh, what we think will be a new era uh, in terms of two-drug therapy. And I'll just briefly mention the Gemini study. This is an important phase three clinical trial. I imagine many of you have um, heard these data. This studied two-drug therapy with dolutegravir 3TC versus three-drug therapy with dolutegravir TDF-FTC in people who are initiating therapy. Um, the week 96 results um, from this trial were presented this summer and were published um, just this week. And just as a reminder, who was in this two-drug therapy study, two drugs versus three? It was mostly males, 85% uh, males. They were pretty young, 32 to 33 years of age, only 12% black. The HIV RNA level, only 20% of people had a viral load over 100,000, and the viral load cap in this particular trial was 500,000. And then the CD4 count mean was in the 460s, and only 8% um, had a CD4 count less than 200. Nevertheless, um, the two-drug therapy really did just as well as three-drug therapy. These are the viral load suppression rates at week 96, so two years of therapy. And you can see really no daylight between the two-drug therapy um, curve and the three-drug therapy curve. So essentially, two drugs as good as three in the Gemini uh, study for this particular two-drug combination can't generalize to all two-drug combinations. A couple other points, um, no treatment emergent resistance. This is really important in either arm, no INSTE resistance, no integrase resistance, no nuke resistance. Blips were not more frequent in the two-drug arm. And then the proportion of viral load less than 40, target not detected, remember, you'll see that on your reports. Um, so target not detected was similar in the two-drug and three-drug arms. So we're going to come back to this. Um, stay tuned, because this is going to be part of the uh, case discussion that, that Dr. Sag will lead shortly. Uh, but I think an important and, as you know, approved drug option for tre initial treatment of uh, HIV.
So I, my job is really to talk about investigational drugs, so um, um, I want to highlight a couple of other emerging and uh, uh, investigational two-drug options that you should keep your eye on. Some of them are available. So for initial therapy, we know that boosted darunavir plus raltegravir, so a PI plus an integrase inhibitor, uh, is effective as a two-drug option, but not when you stress uh, the regimen. So if the CD4 count is less than 200, or the viral load is greater than 100,000, this particular two-drug option is not as good as three drugs. For maintenance therapy, once you get someone suppressed, there are several good options for maintenance therapy. So once someone is suppressed, we've got an approved drug, dolutegavir rupivirine, uh, that, looks, um, that is as good as three-drug therapy that was shown in the SWORD study. And then there's a bunch of phase three clinical trials with a boosted PI plus 3TC that once you get someone suppressed, it is fine to put them on a boosted PI plus 3TC, that particular two-drug regimen. So that's maintenance therapy. Now, what about more, I would call, emerging or investigational two-drug options for treatment of HIV? So for initial therapy, again, your patient comes to you in clinic, newly diagnosed. There is a small trial, a little over 100 participants, with boosted darunavir plus 3TC. This is a um, study called ANDES that looks quite good. It looks as good as three-drug therapy, so that's a potential option, uh, although there's not a big trial uh, to show its efficacy. A regimen that I'm going to come back to, a really intriguing two-drug regimen to keep your eye on for the future is Aslatravir. We'll talk about that, and Duravirin. That's investigational, so that's a two-drug option um, that's, that's being studied. For second-line therapy, one uh, study to keep your eye on, this is not yet out, um, is um, called, um, is uh, shown here. This is boosted darunavir plus dolutegravir being studied for second-line therapy. It's a thousand-person study. This is ongoing. And so that would be a two-drug option for second-line therapy, not yet out. And then finally, for maintenance therapy, some um, newer two-drug options that are being evaluated uh, boosted darunavir plus ropivirine, small study, looks okay. A, study, a drug combination that a lot of us like when we um, get into trouble is boosted darunavir plus dolutegravir. There are some data with that particular two-drug option, um, a study called Dualis that was presented this summer. That particular combination, boosted darunavir plus dolutegravir, once someone is suppressed, looks as good as three-drug therapy in a study that had about 280 people, 260 people. And then a two-drug option that I'm going to spend a fair amount of time on because it's really um, close, we think, in terms of FDA approval, is cabotegavir-rilpivirine, and we'll come back to that particular um, combination. Okay, so now I'm going to um, transition um, off of two-drug therapy, or although we're going to talk about cabotegavir-rilpivirine, I'm going to transition to um, long-acting therapy. And I want to put this in the context of a case. I think this will work, but if not, we'll do a show of hands. So um, this is a patient I see. He's 55 years old. He's got HIV. He's got achalasia, dysphagia. He's had long-standing, a decade of difficulty swallowing pills. He is virologically suppressed on the two-drug combination of dolutegravir and lilpivirine, fixed-dose combination. And he asked me whether there are long-acting HIV medicines that he can take instead of a daily oral regimen. So how should you respond? And can you signal, can, can this work on the ARS, or are we going to do a show of hands for this one? I think, I'm, I think that's a thumbs up. Okay. So go ahead and vote. Can he, is there uh, something he can take that is not a daily oral pill? So go ahead and uh, say yes, no, not yet, or I don't know.
Um, good. I mean, this is, uh, this is a good uh, uh, diversity, but the answer is probably not yet, but the answer may be yes soon. So let's see, let's see where we are. <laughs> let's see where we are with this. Okay, so this is, um, uh, um, I would say, the first of the, what may be more than one in the future, long-acting drug regimens. It's a reg regimen of an integrase inhibitor called cabotegravir and rilpivirin, which, as you know, is an NNRTI. And these are available or have been studied as long-acting nanosuspension formulations. These particular drugs have half-lives of months. So the study that I think, uh, the two studies that I think are important to, to know about, because these are what are leading to the, the FDA um, um, review of this particular combination, are the ATLAS and FLARE studies. These are phase three clinical trials that are comparing long-acting cabotegravir repivirine to oral therapy. The way these are set up is ATLAS was set up for people who are suppressed already on oral therapy, and they're randomized to either continue their oral therapy or to get switched to monthly cabotegravir repivirin given by injection. And we'll come back to the practicalities of that because I do want to go into some practical aspects. The FLARES uh, study is similar, another phase three study. Here they uh, are treatment naive. They get put on oral therapy, and then once they're suppressed, they get switched to monthly IM cabotegravir repivirin versus continuing their oral therapy. A little bit difficult to see, but if you look um, at that blue box, I'll just summarize what that is, is there's an oral lead-in with oral cabotegravir and rilpivirine for about a month in these studies to make sure uh, patient participants are, are tolerating the oral versions of the drug before they start the injections. So these data were updated this past summer. This is kind of a pooled analysis, and in the green you see the intramuscular cabotegravir rilpivirine given once a month. And in the purplish, you see the oral therapy, continuing oral therapy, and essentially no difference in terms of virologic suppression. So these phase three data look good uh, for monthly intramuscular cabotegravir rilpivirine, essentially non-inferior to three-drug therapy. The one thing uh, just to keep in the back of your mind is there were some uh, examples of virologic failure on the long-acting therapy, and in some instances, there was treatment emergent resistance, curiously, and no one has quite figured this out. This was in subtype A participants. So in the United States, we have mostly uh, clade B virus. These were all in um, sub, uh, clade A virus, mostly in Russia. There was a clinical trial site in Russia. Some of those participants, if you look over here, had um, uh, baseline resistance to uh, NNRTIs. Not all of those six participants, but a couple of them did. And five of the six had this curious integrase polymorphism, the L74I. Um, but when they failed, then they had both nuke resistance and uh, RT resistance. Now let's come back to this L74I. People have wondered if that polymorphism in integrase might have been the explanation. But at the Mexico City meetings, when they looked at L74I, what they found is it was more common in subtype A, that's true, the clade A, but it didn't affect treatment response. So that's not the sole explanation for these six failures. What about drug levels? When they looked at drug levels for cabotegravir rilpivirine, the drug levels were a little bit low, lower in the people who failed, but they were well within the range of people who also succeeded. So it didn't seem to be a drug level issue. So something we don't quite have an explanation for um, uh, still being evaluated. So um, this new drug, like any new drug, uh, raises questions, but because of its intramuscular injection, it raises questions that I think are new for us. Um, one is um, some practical aspects. Is that four-week oral lead-in with oral cabotegravir, oral ropivirine needed, or can you go directly to injections? We don't know. 
What about the long pharmacokinetic tail? I, I know this came up in a discussion yesterday that Mike Sack told me about. Cabotegravir levels, once you stop the injections, are detectable up to 48 weeks after an injection. And in women, that tail, that pharmacokinetic tail, is even longer. Will the drugs be useful in people who have difficulty adhering to oral ART? Can you use it in someone who's viremic? That is, can you start therapy with cabotegravir or gloprivirine? Um, we don't know. That has not been studied. There was an interesting case report out of, um, at the European meetings just last month where a, a patient who had a bowel resection was not able to absorb oral um, ART was given, uh, under compassionate use, um, intramuscular cabotegravirogolpivirine, got suppressed, and then actually had a reversal of his, um, or had some bowel surgery and was able to then be switched later to oral um, antiretroviral therapy. This is a case report. This is not something to try at home, but, um, but it is um, um, interesting, and, and we'll see. We don't know the answer is, can you start off therapy with intramuscular cabotegravir? It's not, it's really not been studied. Importantly, we, uh, we talked a little bit about a cost in the last session. What will the cost of the drugs be? And will the cost of the administration be reimbursed? We're going to talk about how do you administer these drugs. Two studies I want to make you aware of. One, there's a press release out on, and one is, is under enrollment. So there's a study called ATLAS-2M, which is the same intramuscular cabotegravir repriving, a little bit different dose, that is now being studied every other month, so six times a year versus 12 times a year. So there's a phase three open-label uh, study. There are 48-week results comparing oral ART um, or every four-week uh, cabotegravir-lopivirine to uh, every eight-week cabotegravir-lopivirine. And what has been reported, it's a press release right now, so we don't know the details, is that the every eight-week intramuscular injection of cabotegravir-lopivirine was as good as every four-week. Uh, we will see. I think at the upcoming CROI meeting, um, there's likely to be more data on this, and that will be really interesting uh, to see if that, um, is, as you know, if there's any caveats to that, but at least the top-line result seems to be that it's non-inferior. One study for those of you who work in um, uh, cities where there's an AIDS clinical trials group, uh, there is a study of uh, people who are having difficulty adhering to antiretroviral therapy given orally. Uh, it's an ACTG study where people are um, uh, given cabotegravir-lopivirine. Uh, they're randomized to that as one of the two options. So I would encourage people to, to refer to that, um, refer uh, patients, participants to that particular study. Okay, I wanted to spend a little bit of time because the FDA just, um, I didn't mention this before, but I'll mention it now. The FDA has this particular monthly formulation under review, and it is anticipated that the FDA is going to make a ruling this month. So by the time this calendar year is over, there's likely to be, um, uh, there may be approval of this drug, and so therefore we're going to have to think about the practicalities. So here are some practical aspects. The way you give this drug is there's a loading dose, and the loading dose is a three milliliter injection into the buttock, we'll come back to that, of cabotegravir and a three milliliter injection of rilpivirine. Once they get that loading dose, um, if they're on monthly therapy, which is what the FDA approval is, is being considered for, then it's two milliliter injections of cabotegravir and two milliliters of rilpivirine given once a month. Rilpivirine ha requires um, refrigeration. And the injection is in the gluteus medius, not the gluteus maximus, but the gluteus medius. I had to kind of find a, um, a map of, uh, you know, a figure of this. And um, it's the upper outer quadrant of the buttock, and I've kind of tried to, to show it there. Obviously, you're going to need a private place for injections. Um, there are uh, obviously some of our patients who have had buttock implants. I don't know exactly how that will play out. 
A couple of other practical aspects. Um, we will need some kind of staffing and physical space to deliver these injections. If you have a 3,000 patient clinic, if 10% of our patients, um, not, not all patients are going to want this, want injections, that would be as many as 15 visits per day, since there's two different drugs, 30 injections per day. How many of you are set up to do this in your clinic right now? I see like two or three hands, okay. All there alternative places to deliver injections? Could this be done in pharmacies? Now obviously they can't be done in a pharmacy unless there's a private place, but I'm told some pharmacies are um, giving um, injections in private places, but this is a, a consideration we're going to have to, to grapple with. Could it be done in the home? How will, remember, how will uh, patients remember to come in for visits? Right now there's an oral prescription that triggers it. Uh, will we be needing to remind people, or how will we be uh, needing to remind people to come in visits? Might pharmacies play a role there as well? And importantly, if patients are coming in late for their injections, they're going to have to have some way to be orally bridged because of that long tail. So if you want to talk about this in more detail, there is a workshop uh, this afternoon. Please come to that. We can grapple with these uh, considerations together because I do think this is something we're going to be uh, talking about in the, in, the, in the ensuing months. So here's my kind of take on cabotegravir rolpivirine. I think for most of my patients, daily oral ART is going to remain effective and convenient and they're going to want to stay on it. I think long-acting cabotegravir rolpivirine may be a good option for people who struggle with taking an oral regimen, either swallowing difficulties like the patient I have that I, I presented, or um, stigma, whether it be an external stigma or internal stigma. And people who struggle with adherence uh, with oral ART, this might be a, a helpful option as long as we can figure out a way to have the person come back in for appointments. Maybe combining visits with other appointments may be helpful, maybe when picking up methadone refills, maybe if they're coming in for a psychiatrist, psychologist support group visit, maybe a time to, to have the injection scheduled. But even if, um, I do think that if every eight-week dosing is shown to be as good as every four-week dosing, that's going to help at six times a year rather than four time, uh, 12 times a year. But still the same issues about um, adherence issues, long PK tail, oral bridging reminders, the administration, those are still going to be there, it'll just be less frequent. So happy to discuss in, in more detail in the workshop or in the question and answer. Okay, so I've kind of been so far in the here and now. We've talked about two-drug therapy. We've talked about something that's coming down the pike, um, you know, probably this month. Now I want to talk about new drugs for multidrug-resistant HIV. And this is where the pre-activity question came in. And there is an update, as I said, from this morning. Okay, so let's... Um, I'll give you a case. This is not a, a case for you to delve into the resistance. I just use this as a setup to the question. So this is a patient I see, 60 years old, a woman, had HIV since the 1990s, has had multiple previous regimens, viral load of 20,000, CD4 count over um, about 150. And she's resistant to a whole bunch of different drugs. You can see the phenotype there. And so the question I wanted to ask you is which of the following classes of ARVs are either in or have completed phase three clinical trials for treatment. What, which of these classes are something that we might be able to offer her uh, for her drug-resistant HIV in the near future? So is it um, entry attachment inhibitors, maturation inhibitors, capsid inhibitors, or broadly neutralizing antibodies? And please go ahead and vote. We're gonna t um, touch on several of these, but I wanna see um, uh, what you think about which of these drugs is closest to the clinic. Tell us why you had to hide away for 
So kind of a, a mix of answers. The an answer here is, is the top one, is the entry attachment inhibitor. So I want to uh, talk a little bit about these. Um, one is approved, and then one um, uh, just this morning there's an update on. So I'm kind of keeping you in suspense here. Okay, so go ahead and let's see what the next slide is. Okay, so what are entry inhibitors? So you know some of these drugs, because there are FDA-approved drugs in this class already. But what entry inhibitors are, are drugs that block virus entry. So the first of these is infuvertide, uh, uh, T20. That blocks virus cell fusion. The next drug that blocks entry is Maraviroc, the next approved drug that um, blocks entry, which blocks the virus binding to the CCR5 co-receptor. So the two new entry inhibitors, one was approved um, uh, last year and one um, is being considered this year, are CD4 entry inhibitors. They bind CD4, they block the virus uh, interaction with CD4. So ibilizumab is an IV drug that was approved last year. That's an entry inhibitor that works on CD4. And the drug that's coming down the pike is fostemzivir, and that's also an entry inhibitor that binds on the CD4 part of the entry. So a word about ibilizumab, this is FDA approved. This is a monoclonal antibody. It binds, so there are a number of antibodies that are being studied. This antibody binds the host cell, CD4. It doesn't bind the virus, it binds the host cell, and that's different than the BNABs, the broadly neutralizing antibodies that we'll get to. It blocks HIV entry. It's called the post-attachment inhibitor. It works against both CCR5 and CCR4 utilizing virus. Again, this is on the CD4 side. In a small but important phase three clinical trial, 50% of those patients who got ibilizumab plus optimized background therapy achieved viral load suppression. And so this was FDA approved based on, on those data. It's an IV infusion. You have a loading dose, um, and then it's 800, uh, 2,000 milligrams, and then 800 milligrams every, eight, every two weeks. And the duration of infusion is 15 to 30 minutes. So the drug that's not yet approved, but I learned just a few minutes ago, has now been filed with the FDA as of this morning. It's called Festemzivir. So um, keep your eye on this drug. This is an oral attachment inhibitor. Ebolizumab is, is IV. This particular oral attachment inhibitor um, binds the Temzivir, which is the, the, the drug itself, binds to GP120 and inhibits HIV attachment. And there's a phase three clinical trial that's been completed, so that's why this is the right answer, a phase three clinical trial of this attachment inhibitor in people who had virologic failure. So this phase three trial had two different cohorts. It had a randomized cohort, and in the randomized cohort of over 270 people, these patients had at least one other active drug, FDA-approved drug, that they could combine with fostemzivir. And the way it worked is they got eight days of the fostemzivir versus placebo, and then they got, um, everybody got rolled over, everybody, to fostemzivir plus an optimized background regimen where they got the fostemzivir with at least one active drug. Then there was a non-randomized cohort where there were no, act, no approved active drugs, about 100 patients, no approved active drugs. They got fostemzivir, and then uh, some of those patients also got to use a, an investigational drug. These are the drugs that were combined in the non-randomized, I'm sorry, in the randomized cohort. It was mostly drugs like dolutegravir, darunavir, but in a lot of instances, uh, the darunavir wasn't fully active. And even the dolutegravir was only active in about 60%. Here's the non-randomized cohort, just as a, um, a brief mention. 15 participants in that got ibilizumab. That's the same drug that I mentioned before. That was not FDA approved at the time. 
These are the results. These are the phase three clinical trial results. In the randomized cohort, about 60% of uh, participants got to viral load suppression under, um, under, I think this was under 40 copies. And in the non-randomized cohort, the cohort that did not have any other approved drugs, 37% uh, got um, uh, uh, suppressed. So I, I had regulatory submissions are anticipated to take place around now, and thus this morning, um, this, this particular drug was filed with the FDA. So we will see what they rule, but um, this is now in front of the FDA. Okay, in the last um, seven or eight minutes, I'm gonna talk even further down the pike in terms of what's on the horizon. I'm gonna talk about these drugs listed here. So let's start with a drug called Aslatravir. This is, um, has a, a number that you can see there. This is a new class called the nucleoside RT translocation inhibitor, so a new class of drugs. It's very, very potent. What you're seeing in those graphs are down to 0.5 milligrams of Aslatravir will suppress the viral load up to more than seven days, so a single dose. It's got a very high barrier to resistance, and then it has a very long half-life. It might be dosed as little as um, once a week or even less frequently, although it's being studied for treatment once a day. Here is the phase 2B study that's leading to a phase 3 study. These data were presented earlier this year. In this particular design, uh, everyone got three drug therapy to begin with, Aslatravir, Duravarine, which is an NNRTI plus 3TC, and then they got switched to a two-drug regimen of Aslatravir, this new drug, plus Duravarine, at about week 24 once they got suppressed. And what you're seeing in those curves is three-drug therapy, which is in gray, uh, Duravarine, 3TC, TDF, versus the several doses of Aslatravir, Duravarine, and essentially all of these uh, combinations did fine in this, in this phase 2B study. So that looked promising and promising enough that um, uh, studies are being launched. One, two other comments, no participants had virologic failure who had um, resistance, so that was also promising. So this is where this drug is. There's a phase three treatment program that's being launched. There's a trial with Aslatravir for treatment experienced patients. There's a tr uh, two trials for patients who are switching therapy. And then there will be a phase three trial for treatment naive patients. A couple other future possibilities. Based on the PK, Aslatravir has the potential for once weekly dosing for treatment, although it's being studied right now once a day. And there's also been considered for PrEP. I think during this meeting you might hear about that again. Uh, there's promising PK results with an Aslatravir implant. Okay, let's uh, switch to another drug that's even further off, but it has some exciting data behind it. There's a drug called the capsid inhibitor. This works on a different part of the virus, both assembly and disassembly of the virus. What's interesting about the capsid inhibitor is when you give it subcutaneously, it has a very long half-life. You got levels out to about six months. That's what those levels are. And at the summer meetings this year, when they looked at it in people with HIV, what those blue curves are are viral load reductions after you give a capsid inhibitor, and you can see the viral load goes down, you know, one and a half to two logs. So it does have antiviral activity. About a few weeks ago, um, a couple of new trials were announced with this capsid inhibitor. A study in treatment experienced patients with drug-resistant HIV is being launched. A phase two trial in treatment naives. And what's interesting about the capsid inhibitor is the way they're gonna give it is they're gonna give it with a two-week oral lead-in, so they must have an oral version of the capsid inhibitor followed by subcutaneous injections every six months. So again, a really um, a novel uh, way to, to proceed. I'm gonna mention briefly, because of time, I see my yellow light coming on, two antibodies that work against um, uh, entry. So these are not as far along as temsevir or fostemsevir. One is called UB421, that's an antibody against CD4. 
and then a drug that's got, um, unfortunately, it's, in my mind, it's the Charlie Sheen drug, because that actor was on this particular drug, Pro-140, but uh, there's a drug called um, Pro-140 that's also coming down the pike. I'm going to briefly summarize these, because these are further back. UB-421 is an antibody against CD4. There was an important New England Journal study that, that showed results from this. Bottom line from this particular study is about 30 patients who were uh, given this antibody, they were taken off of oral ART. All 29 of those patients stayed virologically suppressed on this antibody. There were some rashes, um, uh, but we'll have to see how this um, uh, plays out. It's been approved in China for a phase three ART substitution trial. So that is, it's being uh, a new phase three trial is going to go on in China. This particular drug is being developed by um, investigators that uh, work in Taiwan. And then a drug that you might have heard about, Pro-140. I'll just give you a brief update here. This is a monoclonal antibody against CCR5. So both of these are entry inhibitors. They're antibody therapies. It's a weekly subcutaneous infection uh, injection. There's two ways it's being studied. One is to try to substitute for oral ART, and then the other is to use it for drug-resistant um, virus. The substitution trials, I've been a little disappointed about. This is basically where they take people, they give them the subcutaneous injection, and then they stop the oral ART. Here, what I would say is that there's, a, I think, a too high of a virologic failure rate, anywhere from 14 to 66 percent, depending on the dose. That's what all those, those graphs show. Um, so I think that has some concerns. Where I think it might have a ro role, although the data is still coming, it's not, not far enough along to, to know where it's going to land, is in people with drug-resistant HIV, when they got Pro-140 versus um, placebo, a substantially higher proportion of people who got Pro-140 uh, had a substantial viral load reduction. So if you go to the bottom line here, this is the um, these trial that I'm alluding to. 81% uh, of participants did achieve viral load suppression when they got Pro-140 with optimized background regimens, but we need a little bit more information on uh, how drug-resistant were those viruses and what were those optimized background regimens. So I put these up not because these are close, but only because these are coming down the pike. I do think that Pro-140 is a little bit closer than the, the other drug that I, that I mentioned. And then I'm going to finally conclude with um, really forward-looking um, um, uh, items, which are these broadly neutralizing antibodies. So just to be clear, what I've been talking about so far are antibodies against the host cell, CD4, CCR5. Broadly neutralizing antibodies that you've probably been hearing about, these BNABs, are against the virus itself, um, and they really bind to the viral envelope. What I think is fair to say about the BNABs is we're going to need two or more of these BNABs together in order to keep viral load suppression. And this has been shown in a study from Rockefeller that if you have two BNABs, it's better than a single BNAB, which only makes sense. You need multiple targets in order to prevent resistance. We're going to need to combine these with multiple antibodies with multiple specificities. And the, the Antibody that I think is really looking promising is a drug called VRCO7. You're going to see a bunch of trials with that particular drug. And a really interesting idea is to combine it with cabotegravir, and the ACTG is launching a study of combining a broadly neutralizing antibody with an antiviral. A couple other drugs to keep your eye on. We've talked about entry inhibitors like fostemzivir. There are other ones coming down the pike. There's um, NNRTIs, which are intriguing, um, including a drug called alsufavirine, um, which can be lo uh, long-acting. And then I've already talked about the mon monoclonal antibodies. In my last minute before I summarize, in addition to new drugs, there are new ways to deliver drugs. And these are some of the things that are in development. 
There are uh, long-acting injectables, the uh, NNRTI that I mentioned, but other ones are being looked at for long-acting um, um, injectables. Same issues with cabotegravir, ropivirin are going to be confronted with these. There are also implants. Um, Aslatravir, I mentioned already, is being studied for PrEP, but other uh, drugs are being uh, formulated as implants. Um, patches are being looked at, oral once-weekly delivery systems, and then novel antibody delivery systems. So here's my summary. Have we moved into the era of two-drug therapy? The Altitegravir 3TC is already approved. I think there's new and investigational two-drug therapies that are under investigation, and I've tried to point you towards those. What are the ART options in someone who has difficulty taking daily drugs? Long-acting IM, cabotegravir, ropivirine may be approved soon. What do you give to someone with highly drug-resistant HIV? Right now, ibilizumab is approved. Fostemzavir has been filed with the FDA with promising results in a phase three trial. And then what's on the horizon? I've, sh I've shown you some of the things coming down the pike. Um, what I um, really continue to be amazed about with HIV is no matter, you know, many decades into this, we continue to see dynamism, new developments, n uh, novel approaches, which uh, keeps all our uh, lives uh, exciting and, and hopefully will help our patients in the future. So with that, I think I'm two minutes over, I, uh, but I will uh, take any questions that you have. Great. Thanks, Raj. <laughs> Okay, great. Wonderful overview and uh, fits in nicely with uh, the cases we're about to hear about. Several questions on cards. You're welcome to go to the microphone as well. On the 148-week data for dolutegravir 3TC, there appeared to be a few more failures happening and some resistance. You want to comment on that? Yeah, so um, I'm sure we'll talk about dolutegravir 3TC when we get to the cases, but out to week 96, which is the data that's been presented publicly at least, um, there was no resistance in... Um, in uh, either the two-drug arm or the three-drug arm. Now, I will mention that the ACTG did a small study, about 100 patients who got dolutegravir 3TC, where there was some resistance seen. What, so I was a little surprised, actually. I was a little worried that dolutegravir 3TC might show resistance in the Gemini studies, but it didn't. When I asked the lead investigator for the ACTG study why in their 100-person study there was resistance, one thing he, he commented on is, it, the adherence was very, very poor in the participant who developed resistance, and they were taking the drugs separately, and it may be that just by, maybe that person was taking dolutegravir monotherapy, which we know is not enough to suppress the virus. Yeah. So no resistance that I'm aware of, maybe you are, but uh, out, uh, out to 96 weeks in either of the two drug arms. Now what um, people sometimes wonder about is, and, and Mike may talk about this, is the, there was only a small number of participants who had CD4 counts less than 200. But there did seem to be less virologic suppression in the people who had CD4 counts less than 200. It did not seem to be due to virologic failure. There was kind of a smattering of different reasons, um, but it didn't seem to be resistance or virologic um, failure. But and was that resistance the 184V, or was that a dolutegravir resistant? So um, in Gemini, no resistance in either arm. In the ACTG study, there was uh, dolutegravir resistance um, in that particular study. Yep. And we're going to talk, the other part of that question was, uh, using it for initial therapy before you have resistance data, but we'll talk about yeah, that in yeah, the that's questions. A good, that's a very good question. Um, in the uh, BRIGHT study, you mentioned uh, that ibilizumab had uh, about a 15% activity. What about the combination of fostemzavir with, is, they're attacking different parts yeah. of CD4? That's a great question. So let me um, uh, delve into that just for a moment. So. In the BRIGHT study, that was the Fostemzavir phase three clinical trial. In the non-randomized cohort, that was the group that had no approved drugs that were active. 15 of those 99 people got ibilizumab with Fostemzavir. 
and it did seem to be a viable option. Um, when, if any of you come to the workshop, we will work through a case that Jeff Lennox sent me of just such a case where they were using ibilizumab with fostemzivir. So even though they're both entry inhibitors, they do seem to work um, uh, on different parts of the virus, and they can be combined. Yeah. And so that, that's an, an interesting idea. And I think in our most difficult-to-treat patients, that's what I would be reaching for. Okay. Uh, for intramuscular cabotegravir, um, is there any looking towards dose adjustment based on weight or size or women or that yeah, type of thing? That, that's a very good question. Um, so the question again is um, for um, cabotegravir rolopivirine, is there going to be dose adjustments based on sex or on weight? There are data coming out on drug levels based on, um, you know, obese and uh, obese uh, participants, um, women versus men. I'm not aware, and maybe someone in the audience is, um, that they're going to be doing just dose adjustments based on sex or on weight. But I think it's something to keep your eye on. I have seen some discussion mostly on weight, not so much on, um, on sex. One reason people think that the, the PK tail may be longer in women um, has to do with um, where the drug goes into fat. And so uh, there are going to be PK considerations, but, um, but I don't know that there'll be dose adjustments. So. What's the benefit of using antibody therapy over standard therapy? For example, substitution, somebody suppressed, and yeah. you put them on a BMAB or something. So I think the real um, promise of antibodies in the future, but they're not here yet, well, one is certain antibodies like ibilizumab, you know, will serve a role for people who have highly drug-resistant virus where our oral drugs don't work anymore. But these more novel therapies, if you can engineer an antibody, and you can, to last for six months or 12 months, that's when I think you're going to see a, a big, you know, great leap forward. <laughs> that's when you're going to see, um, you know, if we're dosing people not um, once a month or even every two months, but if you can engineer an antibody to be given once every six months, then I think that's, that's going to be an, uh, a big improvement. That's, that, that's harder to do. I mean, you can engineer drugs to last a month or even two months, as we saw with these nanoformulations. Um, but that, that's where I think the antibody field wants to go. Yeah, they'll so, call it Neil Armstrong Avir or something yes, like that. Yes, right, right, right. One yeah, giant leap. Shot. Okay. Um, with some of the new agents, um, especially those that have this long tail, how, we, how do you think we're going to be managing that? Um, what, what do you do? How do you, how we prepare for that in terms of guarding against resistance? Yeah. So that, that's a great question. I wish I had a precise answer for you. Um, come to the workshop. Maybe we can come up with an answer together. I think, I mean, let me say what I can say about these long-acting drugs. So they're being studied for PrEP, as I think probably many people know. For rolpivirine, which my understanding is, is so rolpivirine is an NNRTI. It's pretty easy for the virus to get resistant to NNRTIs, or especially to, um, to things like nevirapine and even to rolpivirine. There is a case of a person who got resistant to rolpivirine when they were getting it as an injection for PrEP. For these drugs, cabotegravir, rolpivirine, um, there is a big concern that if people stop coming to clinic and they don't get an oral bridge, that the drugs are going to leach out slowly and resistance could develop. I think that's where we're going to have to, you know, um, be innovative and, and, and figure out a way that we can re-engage people. It's, I'm not saying it's easy. I, I don't know precisely the answer. I think this ACTG uh, trial and people who have had trouble with adherence may give us a, a sense of how much resistance or what, what the considerations are going to be. But I will um, discuss this a bit more in the workshop, and I think it's going to be something we'll have to, as these drugs become online, um, work out systems to, to remind people and to bring them back into care. It's not going to be easy. What about, uh, is there any role for bringing back T20 to match up with some of these? Yeah, so T20 is again an as an entry inhibitor. The, um, you know, 
I, most of my patients who are in that situation, T20 has had so much trouble with the, the injection site reactions that we all remember that um, I think it will be hard. Um, in, in really dire cases, it might be needed, but I think um, hopefully the combination of Fostemzivir, which is oral, and then Ibilizumab would, would get our patients through the ones who are most resistant. Okay. How do you assess for drug resistance in somebody who's suppressed? Should we be doing that before we switch to cabotegravir-rolpivirine? Yeah, yeah. That, that's a great question. So let me repeat the question. Um, so in someone who's virologically suppressed, but we, supposing we don't have a pre-ART genotype or we just can't get it from wherever their prior care was, how are we going to be sure that they're not resistant to cabotegravir-rolpivirine? That's a, a good question. Um, so we should, if possible, try to get their pre-ART genotypes. That's not always possible, I know. The thing that sometimes people will send, I'm sure some of you have sent this, is the proviral genotype. I don't know if you have a case on that this year, but um, the proviral genotype is a genotype test that you can send in people whose plasma RNA is, is suppressed. It looks at DNA, not RNA. And it can um, tell you if there's resistance present that may have been there before they got put on ART. The dilemma with the proviral genotype is it's, we think, specific, but we do, its sensitivity may not be great. So the example here is there's a study where people had historic genotypes in hand, M184V was present, and only 50% of the time did the proviral genotype, once they were suppressed, show that M184V. So you knew that patient had M184V. You had their report in hand, but when you did their proviral genotype in 100 patients or so, only 50 of them had it on the proviral genotype. So the bottom line with the proviral genotype for me is that if I see resistance, I'm, I'm sure that it's there, or I'm, you know, I think I, I act as though it's there. I think there's, but if I don't see resistance, I'm still a little worried about what they might have had. So um, I, that's what I would do. I would look for resistance on the proviral genotype if I had someone suppressed, and I try to get their historic, you know, RNA genotypes. Yep. A couple of questions we're going to get to in the next lecture. One's about 3TC, and do you really need to renally adjust it? I'll, we'll get into that. Yeah. Um, the patient on ibilizumab and um, uh, bictegravir, uh, what's next if they fail that? Um, what, what do we do? So ibilizumab and bictegravir. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think fostemzivir may have a role. Um, the question is, do they have, um, you know, what is their resistance to, if, if they, what is their resistance to bictegravir? Bictegravir really has only been studied for initial therapy. So dolutegravir, there's, there's dosing recommendations around twice daily dosing of dolutegravir if you've got low-level integration uh, resistance. We don't have that same data with bictegravir. But I have um, suppressed, salvaged a few people who were raltegravir resistant with twice daily dolutegravir. And there's, there's a, a good study called Viking 3 that tells you how to do that. So, right. so dolutegravir plus ibilizumab or dolutegravir yeah. and um, fustemzivir might be. Right. And the good news is that, um, uh, as I'll show you in the next lecture, um, the actual number of patients yeah. that have minimal or low treatment option, limited treatment options, is very small these days. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, there was one question here, is there anything in the horizon about ozone therapy besides climate change, I guess? <laughs> just wondering. Oh, I, 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 I don't know the uh, answer I, I to that, but I bet you do. <laughs> no, I don't. Um, but, but it used to be put, that, I mean, a long time ago, that it kills HIV-infected cells, but I don't think it's ever been used um, clinically. Not that I know of. Okay. Not that I know. Maybe and, the hyperbaric uh, right, exactly. ozone combination. So. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
Okay, this last one's a little bit long and we've run out of time, so I'll come up to Raj afterwards if you just submitted this last question. We got through most, all of them. That's I'm happy cool. to stay at the break and look forward to talking to you both at the break and at lunch and, and at the workshop if you come. Great, thank you, Raj. And before